Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. This crew is good. You know what they're looking at? The LAPD. The police department. You just got me. Okay, motherfucker! Hello and welcome to a very special donors-only holiday episode of The Greatest Generation, Heat Edition. It's a podcast about heat by a couple of guys who have made an embarrassing number of jokes about heat recently. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Franica. The real edge case for a holiday film here, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like... This film is to the holidays probably as celebrating the holidays in L.A., probably feels right yeah yeah it's uh it's it's not a holiday movie it's just the movie that we've been talking about the most lately and yeah uh i think we just thought it would be it's the one that we were most eager to to record a for funsies pod about you know it really made me feel like our origin story for greatest gen goes like you and i sort of feeling each other out on on next generation trivia and references and jokes and stuff. And mm-hmm. I feel like lately this has happened with Heat all over again, yeah. where <laughs> I had no idea you were such a big fan of this film that I'm a huge fan of. And so we've been sort of dancing around uh, all of these yeah. movie quotes and stuff over the last few months. It's been a lot of fun. It has. It has. Uh, I, I think that uh, one thing I hope comes out of this is that the Friends of DeSoto out there listening... Uh, take into the world the knowledge that Heat is a Christmas movie <laughs> and, uh, you know, try and pitch people on that at house parties or <laughs> bars or, you know, just wh- wherever, you know, wh- wherever people are likely to bring up Die Hard, just, uh, <laughs> just bring up Heat instead. <laughs> Man, uh, 1995 is when Heat came out. And yeah. uh, this was one of those first films for me that, that came on the two tapes meaningful oh, yeah meaningful because it was like that fucking masonry brick of vhs yeah and boy pack a lunch right almost three hours long yeah if you're unfortunate enough to watch it pan and scan style which i think a lot of us did for the first several times if we weren't able to see it in a theater uh it's a totally different movie when seen uh in widescreen and there's a really great re-release that happened this year ben uh on yeah. blu-ray that is pretty wonderful the director's definitive edition right yeah yeah that's the version that i watched uh for the purposes of this pod and it's really gorgeous myself as well yeah one of the few films that uh is worthy enough to be owned in physical on physical media i think is this film (laughs) i don't have too many dvds but this is one of them that uh yeah uh, there's just no nowhere in my apartment to even put a a physical media (laughs) item so there might be like a a box, like a cardboard box in my closet from when we moved with some DVDs in it that yeah. seem too valuable to throw away, but also will never get played again. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I basically have eight Sylvester Stallone films and Heat. <laughs> I'm uh, drinking some, some eggnog to enjoy the occasion. Oh boy, um, that's that's going to thicken up the throat nicely as we go. Yeah, yeah. I th- well, I think that that's that's another part of this uh, beloved holiday tradition of ours is that every every year we put a a new 
weird movie episode in the donor feed and i fight through eggnog mucus to to deliver my half of the podcast well uh our our membranes are working overtime ben for the both of us because i'm (laughs) working through my seasonal holiday cold a tradition unlike any other yeah it's been working through my head lately and uh i'm drinking something to combat it it's uh something that my wife and i tend to pour for our friends after we gather for a dinner during the holidays. It's, uh, I don't even know if it has a name. It's pretty simple. It's just a shot of coffee, a shot of rye whiskey, and then basically pour over hot cocoa. Like the best hot cocoa you can find. You just sort of mix it in into (laughs) that with some hot water. And uh, it's a nice little pick-me-up. Wow. That sounds very festive. It's that sweet heat, Ben. Yeah. And a little uh, little spiciness from the rye. Yeah, yeah. I could see that being delightful. Well, we have three hours of movie to talk about. Do you want to get into this bad boy? I sure do. Let's pop in the first tape, Ben. <laughs> Run slick as an alias to the FBI. You're going to get the phone book. Do it anyway. Yeah, stop talking, okay, Slick? This movie is beautifully cinematographed by Dante Spinati and written and directed by Michael Mann. And uh, uh, one of uh, Dante Spinati is of the cinematographers currently working. One of my favorite when it comes to nighttime footage, like the like it, they shoot at night a ton in this film, and yeah. there's very little trickery with that you know they're not doing like day for night or anything like that it's it's night and using lots of like interesting available sources and stuff and uh i just think dante spinati is great at it yeah Uh, he's like he's got a bit of a weird rep more recently with his nighttime stuff because i think as of making collateral with michael mann he got really interested in using high frame rate digital cameras Mm. for his nighttime stuff so like in collateral it looks real video like bbc footage yeah at at nighttime which you know like he's one of the few people that is making that decision on like a really interesting artistic basis but right this this film is spectacular all the way through in terms of what it looks like and uh, we open up on this like this scene of a, a subway train pulling into a station, you know, just really putting us in the place of Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it almost goes without saying, like when you think of LA, you think of their vast and great subway system. Yeah, yeah. The public transit here is really second to none. Michael Mann is kind of obsessed with using the LA Metro, though. Like, the, it plays a big role in Collateral, too, at the end. You know, getting back to Spinate a little bit... Um, the anamorphic lens is kind of a character in this film absolutely as much as anyone else and i think a lot of people who aren't aware of the uh performance characteristics of a lens like this are would think that it's out of focus and especially in the nighttime scenes uh may think that it doesn't look great and i think it's interesting when you talk about spinate's career and he's pivoted as he's pivoted into digital you know like you give up a look like this in favor of something sharper Right. And it's really a product of its time, this mid-90s to late-90s aesthetic with an anamorphic lens. I mean, so many great films were made to look this way. It's really nice to revisit this look again. Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like an anamorphic lens is literally shooting a squished image onto like a a four-by-three piece of film, and then they 
and then they process it later optically to be widescreen, yeah. right? It's true, and uh, they are, I mean, for, it's it's obvious for someone like me to say who isn't a professional, but they are uh, extremely hard to focus in general. And uh, on a Hollywood film, you're having professional fo- focus pullers. Yeah, I've obviously. never messed with an anamorphic lens in my entire film career, so... They are uh, they're pretty difficult to work with, but the results are really beautiful. Speaking of uh, beautiful results, this uh, like he he gets off this subway. This is uh, this is the De Niro character. He gets off this subway. He's wearing a uh, an EMT jumpsuit. Walks through like the back door into an ER, and it is like a fully functional ER. It is not a set. It's like definitely a real yeah. emergency room. It is thronged with people there are there are people like writhing bleeding on on gurneys (laughs) this is an incredibly expensive thing to put together for a scene that just establishes this guy is at a hospital (laughs) right (laughs) like almost any other filmmaker would just have him walk by a sign that says hospital and then like hop into the (laughs) hop into the ambulance and steal it you really feel like you're in good hands right away in this opening scene. It feels a lot like Goodfellas and the walk through the the kitchen area uh-huh. on the way to that dinner. I mean, De Niro quietly skulks his way through the hospital on his way to the ambulance. It's it's great. The film starts with these vignettes, sort of like setting the scene for where all of these chess pieces are are to congregate. Yeah, and uh, it also kind of establishes the superpower he has of just walking through a space looking like he belongs there, which he uses a bunch of times in this movie in a really fun way. Uh, yeah, if you notice, De Niro's character always wears gray, and that's, uh, it's, an, it's a choice he makes in order to blend in uh, with his costume. I mean, and, and his uh, jumpsuit, his ambulatory jumpsuit, <laughs> notwithstanding. Yeah, but not speaking of blending in, Val Kilmer uh, rocking a real flashy ponytail in this movie, and he's uh, somewhere in Arizona or something buying uh, some uh, some explosives from a guy. It's clearly is this the last time someone looked good in a ponytail? Because <laughs> God damn it, he can fucking rock that. Yeah, I mean, it went to man bun after this, I think. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, he's buying these explosives. I think I think this is the guy that played the blood-sucking lawyer in Jurassic Park. Oh. What, we'll have a, a coupon day or something. <laughs> Remember wow. that blood-sucking lawyer? I do, yeah. He got, he got uh, eaten off the, uh, the toilet by the T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Great scene. Great yeah. moment. Fun stuff. I, like... He's very eye-catching in the scene. He's just, this is the only scene in the movie he's in because he's just the guy that sells the the explosives. He uh, was shooting this concurrently with Batman Forever. No shit. Yeah, which I thought was great. You know, it's hard to miss Val Kilmer's lips in this scene. Uh, they fill almost the total, almost the entire frame. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Brady demolition. Yeah, he's got some of the best lips in in Hollywood, and and uh, I mean, his Batman was like probably the most identifiable outside of the cowl, right? Just because like who else has yeah. those lips? Bruce You're Wayne. Casting for lips. Yeah. <laughs> As we go around the horn here, we uh, we we finally meet Al Pacino's character. Yeah. Who he is? is uh, he's having some uh, some morning sex. 
morning sex from behind. <laughs> you don't want to go morning breath to morning breath in that situation. Oh, yeah, you think that's what it is? I kind of think so. Wow, that's, a, I mean, that's an interesting take. You don't you don't uh, make strategic choices based on the breath situation. I'm just I, I don't know. Morning is not is not a t- typical a typical time of day for me. Hmm. Maybe they cut out a scene where he said, "How about if I eat your ass?" And then <laughs> after that, she was like, "No, no, no! I don't want to be facing you." She got off. great ass. <laughs> oh, I love how we're coming out of the blocks here, Ben. <laughs> Give me all that pornographic Pacino. <laughs> I want to suck on your toes, baby. <laughs> and then she just doesn't want to kiss him after that because, like, it's a little gross for her. Yeah. Uh, his lady friend here, Justine. That's not uh, his lady friend. That's his wife. That's his special lady, Adam. I call everyone that, though. <laughs> yeah, third wife for Vincent Hanna here. Third wife and uh, adoptive... Uh, I guess stepdaughter in yeah. uh, Natalie Portman, who is uh, around the house having a bit of a meltdown because she's trying to get ready for her biological dad to pick her up. And uh, Natalie Portman's biological dad, I don't think we ever see, but he is kind of a character in this movie because he is uh, really making uh, his daughter's life miserable. And you know, Pacino's not really doing anything to make up for that, but he does get to go around going like, does this guy know how much is fucking his kid up? Natalie Portman makes some choices here that I wanted to discuss with you briefly. Uh, I think the main question I have about her character is, does she have special needs or is she autistic? Because I sort of got that feeling from her behavior throughout the film. Oh, that's interesting. Like, uh... Like being like super fixated on one yeah. barrette or whatever. Yeah, I kind of got that. Um, I I don't know. I I that's an interesting take that I'd never considered. I mean, the the style of parenting in this movie is so alien to anything I've ever experienced. Yeah, and I think it's you know there's definitely people that are like this and. Uh, and kids that have to grow up with parents that are like so fucking narcissistic and focused on themselves that they can't put the paper down to help the kid get ready for a day out with dad. But yeah, like uh, I feel like there are so many variables different about this family dynamic that I don't yeah. n- know that I would make a diagnosis one way or the other on on uh, Natalie Portman's character. Yeah, that's one thing I, I really shouldn't be doing is armchair diagnosing <laughs> people in that way. But I think she's in the film so little and she's making such specific choices about her behavior and and how she acts out her her conflicts that that, is, uh, that was where my mind went the first time I saw this film and uh, hmm. that is endured with, with subsequent rewatches. I mean, she's clearly very traumatized by... Yeah. some set of things that has has befallen her already and um and she's she's not in a good way. I love all this cross cutting Ben. We meet all of our characters bang bang bang. We go uh, and after this we go straight into Wayne Grow. Yeah. And uh Wayne Grow Wayne Grow really makes an entrance. Like the the camera kind of lingers on this like outdoor mural for a moment and then 
it becomes clear that there is a door in this mural and he kind of bursts through. He's been taking a dump at like a taco stand or something. And he's like putting a shirt on. So he had it off while he was in there for some reason. You can uh, tell he's a bad guy with how he treats a retail employee too. Like you don't just bang your cup on the counter to get a refill. Yeah, he bangs his cup and gets the refill and then runs away the second he sees the big green tow truck, you know? He doesn't even yeah. wait for it. Yeah. Yeah, at the wheel of the, of the tow truck is Chirito. He's the uh, the Tom Sizemore character. Tom Sizemore, uh, one of one of his great roles, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I think that uh, this was not an easy time in, in uh, this dude's life. No. But uh, held it together to... to put in a fucking great performance and uh and i think wayne grow is right there for it like he is like this first scene where they meet each other and wayne grow is like chatty kathy but you know you know he's he's doing a thing of like repping how hard he is and how how uh much he loves to to you know pull big jobs and like wants to be a part of the crew and when sizemore is not impressed by that and is like basically just utterly dismissive of it that that moment where wayne Grove pulls off the, <laughs> the crappy wraparound gas station sunglasses that he's wearing and and just like dagger eyes to <laughs> to chorito fucking great moment there's so much about wayne Grow that's familiar to me and that's one of the elements is is like nervously nicely chatting with someone trying to get in with them <laughs> and he does it he does it later in the diner scene when he offers them uh the pie after he <laughs> fucks a, up the the heist like <laughs> like he goes he goes over the top nice when he's fucked up and yeah like that it me <laughs> yeah you don't you don't love to see a lot of yourself in in wayne grow but you don't <laughs> but there it is yeah <laughs> this heist is like happening before you realize it's happening. Like Wayne Grow is getting is getting picked up, and then like we're in the heist, and like you don't even realize that that's what it is. Like you get Danny Trejo in a car on the radio saying like 100, percent they're right on schedule, and then like the you know the ambulance pulls across a road, and an armored car pulls up, and then this giant green tow truck slams into it from the side. Uh, this is somewhere down under the overpasses that go by the Los Angeles Convention Center. And, uh, and there's like, uh, you know, there genuinely are a bunch of car lot, like, uh, you know, cars for sale yeah. down in that area. So like this is, uh, I don't know if they like made this used car lot for the film or not, because <laughs> they do mess up most of the cars in it in the scene. But uh yeah, they put those explosives on the on the doors of the tipped over armored car, and blow the doors off and pull the three guys out. Do you think that this is standard practice to have three dudes in an armored car, two of whom are just like sitting at a card table in the back, not strapped in or anything? I think it is. I mean, back when I worked a retail job, I used to be fairly close to when those drops would happen, like when the armored car would pull up and the guys would come in and do the cash drop. Yeah. And, I mean, in my recollection, there were always three. Wow. I mean, I can't speak to whether or not there was a card table in the back. But, yeah, uh, I just feel like OSHA would have some thoughts on, like, not wearing seatbelts in the back there. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah. I guess if it's good enough for like school buses, it's probably good enough for armored cars in terms of road safety. Horse playing a school bus is a world gun, man. It's kind of absurd to call a three-hour movie hyper-efficient, but getting to this point is really, really expert exposition. Yeah. Like, we've used the credit scenes not to get to know our characters in a nice, slow way and understand their, their thinking and their motivations. Like, we are, we're in media race. Like, we're, we're in the heist plan. As soon as we fade up. And like they kind of post game how the heist worked instead yeah. of instead of pre gaming. And like that's yeah, that's such a cool way of doing it because like so many, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of heist films will pre game the heist, but then, you know, and they'll and they'll shoot it, you know, they'll show you the heist go down as they're yeah. talking about how it would go. But then they do the real heist and a bunch of things change. Yeah, this is fun because we just get to see the heist. But then later on, Pacino shows up on the crime scene and they kind of like talk through their theory of of the case. Yeah. Bang, 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 bang. But uh, the, the heist goes, you know, more or less according to plan. They they get their uh, their bonds out. But then uh, Wayne Grow, who's really got like a death's head with his hockey mask on, like the <laughs> the way his hockey mask shadows his eyes makes them totally black in a way that's like unlike all of the other guys like all of the other dudes on the heist you can see their eyes and you can see like you can see them like contemplating things but Wayne Grow's mask is like is totally dead inside yeah and the way they they do this a couple of times in the film the way they go shot reverse shot with characters dead center in the frame looking at the camera yeah they do that with Wayne Grow and one of the armored car occupants uh, before he's killed. And that moment is so scary, so uniquely scary for its time, I think. Yeah. And, and I think that the sound design of this scene also really helps. Like the, like the loudness of the, of the guns is like so fucking off the charts compared yeah. to when they're talking. Like I, we have we have the same model of television, so uh, we can actually compare notes here. I had I had my volume at like fifty six or sixty or something like that, and like there were times in the movie where I was like struggling to hear people, and other times in the movie where I was like, "Fuck, this is loud." <laughs> yeah, agreed. I had to I had to dive for the remote and uh, and knock it down a little bit. Yeah, the uh, like especially when like when it goes down and Wayne Grow like kills the dude, you know, Chirito wheels around and wastes the, the second guy who's going for a pistol in his ankle holster. And then they execute the third guy, which, you know, becomes like very interesting to Pacino later. Once it escalated into a murder one B for all of them, after they killed the first two guards, they didn't hesitate. Pop guard number three, because what difference does it make? Why leave a living witness? Uh, Michael Mann did a thing for all of the gunfight scenes, which he recorded the the audio on set. Like, none of this was was put in later. And I think it's what makes the sound of this film so unique. You want to fuck with me? The way everything echoes around the overpasses and in that bank heist scene off of the buildings. Oh, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen this movie, you shouldn't be here. 
uh, <laughs> they make their getaway in the uh, stolen ambulance. They all like pulling off their their onesies, and <laughs> De Niro is like ready to beat up Wayne Grow like in the back of the ambulance. But I don't know why he doesn't choose to just do that. You know, like they've they've already got three bodies at this point. Like, oh, you're just, you're advocating that they shoot him and dump him there. Yeah, like you're you're already burning the the ambulance. Just like take Wayne Grow out. You put the little uh, like milk container full of gasoline yeah. and. You know, yeah. Given what a liability Wangro is later on, I I think I think that would have been smart. But you miss out on the most withering glance Robert De Niro is capable of giving to another human being. <laughs> yeah. The uh, so we see De Niro meet up with John Voight, who uh, has like a totally unbelievable page boy haircut. And mustache in this film. He looks like what a lifetime of playing blackjack and chain smoking cheap cigarettes does to a man long term. <laughs> like I feel like you and I have seen this man before, yeah. mostly in a casino. Yeah, and mostly in a casino, like not on the strip in Vegas, but like a a terrible casino. Yeah, you know, somewhere, somewhere depressing. <laughs> Yeah, this guy is a Nevada zip code that is not Las Vegas or Reno. It's just... <laughs> Out in the boonies. Yeah, he's like he's like wasted an hour at Seven Eleven playing a slot machine. <laughs> uh, John Voight plays Nate, and he's kind of the guy who who has the jobs and the solutions after the fact. Like if you if you're looking to do a heist, yeah, he's probably got some ideas for you. If if you're looking for ways to leave the country, he's also that same guy. He's kind of a fixer. He's like Craigslist, but for heists, right? And, uh, yeah, like, they, uh, they've got these bear bonds, and he's like, hey, like, I just found out that these bear bonds actually belong to this one guy, Van Zant. He's going to collect insurance on these, but he's also a criminal. So uh, maybe we can just uh, make a deal with him. That's maybe- what gives him that other facet, right? I feel like in crime films, you often get this character, uh-huh. and he's, like, he's flipping your jobs to do, but he doesn't really have ideas of his own. But Nate has ideas. He's like, you know, I know you already knocked knocked this thing over and and you made this money, but we could actually make more with this great idea I have. Sell it back then instead of going through the street that's an extra 320,000 to you. Try it out. I wonder, like, does he have other crews that he also interacts with? Like, is this his (laughs) his only work? There's, like, other times in the movie where you see him, like, at a party or something or or whatever. Like, like, man, like, what does this guy's like day-to-day life even look like does he have an office like when he gets a call on like hey i need like new passports and and travel plans and i need them tomorrow does he like have to go like hey guys sorry i have to leave the party and go forge some documents like what what does he do i don't know you only ever see him on the phone in this movie feels like (laughs) it's really true this is when pacino shows up at the crime scene and uh, we get to we get to meet um, the rest of the of the squad. This is like I think I think they're the homicide detectives, but we also see them in an office marked MCU, which I mm-hmm. imagine stands for Major Crimes Unit. Yeah. Uh, so a little unclear exactly what their role is, but they're some kind of super squad in the uh, in the police department, and. Uh, he does that. He does that super cool thing where he drives up to the crime scene, but they like lift up the tape so that he can drive mm-hmm. under it. 
that's a real power move like yeah like everybody else has to park outside the tape but he gets to drive right up <laughs> can you believe how hard it is to park around here <laughs> all the other officers have to valet their cars <laughs> yeah and then they'll validate but only for the first half hour and this is like they're going to be out here a, a while Speaking of efficiency, this is the scene where you understand how great Vincent Hanna is at his job. He he rolls up on the scene and immediately has these guys pegged for the professionals that they are because he himself is a police professional. Recognize the M.O.? M.O.? Is that they're good. He's like standing in the middle of it and like he just, you know, pointing at things. Stolen out of Fresno two weeks ago. The yellow pickup truck out of Whittier day before yesterday. They introduce the rest of his crew here briefly. And God, I love the guys who work with Hannah. And yeah. I think you and I do Bosco lines back and forth quite a bit. But I think Drucker is low key. Like Drucker is fucking great. He's my fa- he might be my favorite guy in this film. He has got such great lines and great reads of those lines. Yeah, yeah. Drecker, played by uh, McKelty Williamson. I mean, if you're ever going to be called a jagoff, you want to be called that by McKelty Williamson. <laughs> uh, we've got Cazals, played by Wes Studi. And then who's the guy with the, like, surfer haircut? Yeah, uh, God, he is so familiar. He looks like uh, he looks like the kid from Home Improvement. He looks like Zachary Ty Bryan. <laughs> I really doubt it's him, though. There would be incredible casting. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that that show was on the air at the same time as this movie came out, so <laughs> I really doubt it. Uh, in the diner scene, is that the guy who plays Newman, who is uh, looking at them? Oh, uh, Wayne Knight? No. Yeah, is that... Because that's another... Uh, we need a name for this. Like, guys we see, like, little glimpses of that look so much like <laughs> like actors we recognize but probably aren't. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, he's... Like, cause if Could you have been. Yeah, it's like... Because if you got Wayne Knight for that, you would give him lines. Because yeah, it's Wayne to. Knight. Yeah. Yeah, the, like, when they start to beat Wayne grow up in the in the booth in the diner there's just like a trucker sitting there eating a eating a sandwich and reading a paper and <laughs> Sizemore like leans over and just a thousand words him <laughs> with this look the guy just I love, like looks back at his paper <laughs> I love how threatening this scene is just uh, by virtue of its blocking so you've got Wayne Grow sitting next to the window and you've got uh Chirito across from him but the guy sitting next to Wayne Grove gets up and makes room yeah. and so they have him totally boxed in against the window like there's something like it's so it's so subtle but the way that they place people in the frame it just makes scenes like this feel so much more dangerous it's a fucking diner how dangerous can it be this is the the same day like maybe hours later after after the heist like the like De Niro has had a chance to to meet up with their their handler, but this is them meeting up to go over the the split apparently. Yeah, and and I, you th- you imagine that Wayne Grow walked in not knowing that he was in as much trouble as he is, and he's definitely he like trying to make nice. You want some pie? 
you don't think he helped them uh, garbage bag the inside of that trunk. <laughs> yeah, he didn't. He's like, so what are we going to put in here later, guys? <laughs> you guys want to go deer hunting or? <laughs> He's probably tipped off when Trejo gets out of the booth and Chirito like comes around the side and sits at the next table over so that if Wayne yeah. makes a move, Chirito can grab him. When they drag Wangro outside to dispense with him, I think this is I think this is the weakest scene in the film for me because you know, up until now we're made to believe that Macaulay and his crew are the most professional and they have they have this this incredible like crime intelligence. But to let him slip away here by like rolling under a couple of cars. Yeah, it's a little weak sauce. It's hard to believe. They had no time because they were on a clock means they knew our response time to a 211, had our air, immobilized it, entered, escaped in under three minutes. I think you're right. Like, I think that part of what's so fun about this movie is how terrifying these guys are. Like, when you do the math on, like, what they're willing to do to to take these big scores, yeah. like, Wayne Grow is a psychopath and a killer, and got he's got a bloodlust. Like, he's... He's terrifying on that level where, like, he wants to do it for the killing people part of it, but they want to do it for the taking money part of it, and they don't care at all about the killing people part of it. They just think of the killing people part of it as, like, a necessary evil at best, and, like, at worst, they don't even think they think it's evil. I think they think of it as, like, an inconvenience, you know? Right, right. Uh, It makes such a big mess, and, like, when guns go off, it's loud, and people can hear it. Yeah, and yet... One of the magic tricks of this film is, like, you know the Macaulay character and his crew are bad guys, but they are so good at what they do, you have to root for them. They're not saving cats. They're <laughs> they're actually doing murders, and yet you're, like, yeah, just as much interested in seeing them succeed as anyone. Right. It's well done. I think it's also partly because Pacino is such a mess. Right. You know, he is the good guy that is trying to stop the crimes, but he's also making everybody in his life totally miserable. Yeah, he's not squeaky clean. After this diner scene, we get the uh, connective tissue that makes this film canonical Trek, which is Ashley Judd. Yeah. You know Robin Leffler? Of course. And the work around here has been so sensational, I've decided to make her a mission specialist. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. She's the wife of Val Kilmer's character. And uh, she's rightfully upset that Val Kilmer's take on that on that robbery was eight thousand dollars. <laughs> this scene horrifies me every time. Like he has to, he pays off a number of bookies, and then like the total take is eight k. <laughs> he's lucky he had anything. I mean, wow. he's lucky he's got a house. He's like he's living in like a pretty nice like ranch style house in the valley somewhere. Like yeah. He's definitely, like, had it where he didn't burn it all on bad bets, but, but yeah, like, one of the, one of the main things about his character is that he is a degenerate gambler, and and basically, like, not fully in charge of his own life. Like, De Niro takes a lot of responsibility for him in a way that is, like, really interesting and, and kind of, like, surprisingly intimate, given... De Niro's ethic in this film. Yeah, it's really paternal. 
it's super paternal, but it's also like you know that like there's another shoe that could always potentially drop, which is that get out of there in 30 seconds if you hear the heat coming around the corner. It's interesting that they made Shaherlis's vice gambling because like I don't know why you would ever want to work with a person who could potentially be manipulated in that way. Like like a gambler is the one person that you could get one up over on. Like he's he's someone you could leverage. And so if right. a gambler is on your crew, you can never feel safe about that. Yeah. Like he can he can always be blackmailed. Yeah, but they trust him. Yeah. So uh, Pacino gets home, and uh, wifey uh, Justine is not not excited that he's home so late. Uh, I made dinner for us four hours ago. Um, every time I try to maintain a consistent mood between us, you withdraw. I got three dead bodies on a sidewalk off Venice Boulevard, Justine. I'm sorry. If the goddamn chicken got overcooked. I understand her gripe because if you've ever if you've ever cooked fried chicken for someone else, you want to make sure that uh, that that's fresh. Yeah, you want it to be piping hot when it gets to the table. Yeah, that's real aggravating. I don't know if he brought it over or if she left it there, like a cat leaving a dead lizard on your doorstep. But the piece of chicken is just sitting directly on the table the entire time (laughs) that they're having this conversation (laughs) in a way that is, like, pretty gross to me. (laughs) Like, don't put your food directly on the table. Yeah, put down a coaster. What's a word for a coaster but for food? (laughs) I don't know. Pacino, like, uh, really fills the space in between words here in a very Ricardo Montalban fashion. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, he is a... Uh... And what's great is, like, he's acting across a stage actor, and I wonder how much that inspired him to really explore the verbal space here. Like, yeah. even more than usual for a Pacino part. He is off the fucking chains in this movie. <laughs> With the I read choices that he makes. His character on paper had a coke habit, which informed... I mean, it was never depicted in the film, but I think it informed uh, the character building that he was doing. Wow. That he brought to every scene. And yeah. when you know that, it kind of makes sense. It's the like... The rest of his behavior. It's like back nine of Scarface Pacino yeah. in this yeah. film. Wow, that's really interesting. This is all still the same day, and we get one more... <laughs> One more uh, little sequence here, which is De Niro goes and buys himself a book, and then he's at a, a restaurant eating at the bar, reading the book, and a uh, young lady st- tries to strike up a conversation with him. This is, uh, this is Edie, played by Amy Brenneman, uh, one of my favorite characters in the film, uh, and a total innocent. Like, she is, she's trying to, you know, be personable with him, and because of who he is and what he does, he is like immediately suspicious that she is asking him questions about what he's looking at, what he's interested in. What kind of work you do? Lady, why are you so interested in what I read or what I do? Yeah, this scene really, it hurts to see her sincerity treated this way. And she's very, 
very hurt by it. Yeah. I think so often you get films filled with criminals or mostly men or whatever, and you get an artsy, crafty person, and that person is just made fun of. Yeah. Or, or like, their interests are made into a joke. But yeah. they never make fun of Edie's career or her interests or anything. Like... No. Macaulay is, is genuinely interested in her and what she does and why. And I think... I think that's great, and I think that serves Edie's character really well, and and it makes her fully developed. It's such an interesting turn he takes in this scene, too, because he has been ruthless up to this point. You know, he gives the nod to Chirito to take out the other two guards in that in that heist scene. He's like, he's ordered kills on screen and and attempted to do another murder, and he was going to do that himself earlier today. <laughs> And now he's here in this bar and he's like rude to this woman, clearly hurts her feelings really badly. He and gave then her the same feel- look he gave Wayne Grove. Like, yeah. that- <laughs> you can't just throw that around at a civilian, man. Well, that's kind of my theory here is that he's still like really keyed up from what he's been through today. You yeah. know, like there's still a lot of uh, cortisol in his system or whatever the fuck. Yeah. How does Macaulay unwind? By reading about Jeez. stress fractures and titanium, Adam. <laughs> I guess so. God. But like he feels terrible when when he hurts her feelings. Like he didn't. He doesn't feel a thing about the three bodies he left on the sidewalk today. But when yeah. when her feelings are hurt, he feels really bad about it. And you know their conversation leads to them back at her place, like checking out the view. Looking, she has a spectacular view for somebody that works in a bookstore part-time and uh, to fund her graphic design habit. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that this place would be rentable on that kind of income nowadays in Los Angeles. But uh, She says she's in the hills above sunset. I guess that's a totally different place in 1995 than it is right now. Looks like she lives at the Griffith Park Observatory. Yeah, and like I think rents on that place are pretty high now, but they used <laughs> yeah. to be quite affordable. Yeah. This is, uh, from a looks standpoint, a scene that really radically shifts from being one of the prettiest in the film to one of the worst in the film, because there's a a big, like, wide over-the-shoulder shot of them leaning out over this railing that shows the city glittering and soft focus in the background. Spectacular. But then when it cuts to the the singles like over the shoulder on uh each of them it's a comp and there's they're probably against a green screen they're putting the a uh, a plate of the los angeles skyline yeah. behind them and there's a couple of things that they do wrong one is that the plate is not out of focus in the same way as the real shot yeah so it it's weird that it a close up of de niro with then you know, two miles of, of distance between him and the thing that is behind him, and they're both in focus. <laughs> it's like an impossible... Like, the comp just looks bad and impossible on its face. Like, even if you don't understand the optics uh, issues at play, like, anybody would look at this and say, that's a fake... You know, they that's fake. Yeah. That's not real. Right. And it's a shame, Right, and this happens. Uh, this happens a couple of times in the film, yeah. like that. It's too yeah. bad. 
But uh, it's clear that these two, these two lovebirds, the the murdering uh, heist man and the uh, ah shucks Appalachian graphic designer, are falling in love with each other. Yeah, he's an artist in his own right. Yeah, there's uh, one thing uh, in this scene that really caught my attention, which is that when she asks him where he's from, he's like, "I'm from the Bay Area." <laughs> and then like she says she went to parsons which is a very famous new york yeah. design school and i think that if you are from new york or have lived in new york for any amount of time you probably would have heard of parsons or seen the huge buildings of parsons downtown yeah like the <laughs> i just i can't imagine the thing that's confusing to me about it is that his name is Neil Macaulay. He does not look like his last name is Macaulay. He does not sound like he's from the Bay Area. Like, is his entire identity fake? Or because everybody calls him Neil, everybody knows him as Neil. Yeah. Like, I thought for sure he would have used a fake name with Ed from Jump, but he never does. He never does. And like, this is she fooled by him saying he's from the Bay Area? If in fact. It's it's a cover identity. Is is he actually supposed to be from the Bay Area? And De Niro just like could not for the life of him talk like Ben Harrison. I think. Uh, well, I think she says it during the scene when they're uh, they're up on the balcony. Like I think when you're, I think when you're lonely and you want to find a connection with someone, I think it's very easy to overlook things like that like a man telling you he's from the bay area when obviously he has a brooklyn accent like yeah. she's she's doing the math in her mind to try to turn this into a real thing and she's willing to overlook that stuff in order to do it yeah just it, it is one of many 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 films of new york guys walking around la like hey i'm from los angeles here <laughs> ridiculous anyways next morning your boy Al Pacino shows up and uh, one of the things that they talked about at the crime scene is that they've got to check with all of the normal fences around town about like who is going to help uh, the crews that stole these bear bonds actually yeah. move them. And he, he rattles off four names. So presumably there are four people that are intimately known to the LAPD in Los Angeles that will fence bearer bonds. Who's moving the bearer bonds? Check the usual fences. You and I will check Cusimano and Torino. I want you to take Goldstein and Alfaro. And uh, they've heard back from all but one, this guy, uh, Torino. And uh, and they show up at his dog fighting ring slash chop shop and uh, and just kind of barge in there and, and uh, everybody clears out. And uh, <laughs> Tarina, uh, played by Ricky Harris, is also a fucking great character because he's like super slippery, but also he's got the gift of gab and he's like clearly got a charisma that plays in lots of contexts. But when he's getting bad cop, worse copped by Drucker and Hannah, it does not work for him. And 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 he like the amount of fear in in his performance like really boils to the surface over the course of the scene in a fun way. I really love his performance. What happens here pays off later because his brother Richard is played by Tone Loke. Yeah. And Albert doesn't say anything in the scene, hardly anything in the scene later with his brother, 
because he does so much great character work here. Like you're sort of coasting on him. And so like, it's so dialogue heavy here to pay off the non-dialogue acting that he does later. It's just really well done. It's, it's well conceived because there's a setup and a payoff. It is a ton of fun. And, uh, you know, he's got a lot of, a lot of gall in the scene. <laughs> and, uh, and that becomes, it becomes clear that that runs in the family. <laughs> But uh, he's, uh, you know, he knows that they've got him dead to rights. And uh, the way that uh, that De Niro walks out of there after having agreed to meet this guy's brother the next night is fucking delightful. Don't waste my motherfucking time! We talked a little bit about using anamorphic lenses, but there's a lot of telephoto lenses happening here. And this is one of those scenes where you see it like shooting far across the wrecking yard into Pacino as he leaves. Yeah. Like it's just such a unique look. Yeah, it looks fucking awesome. And uh and interestingly like the next cut is also a very telephoto shot. It's De Niro getting kind of a pitch for another heist that they're going to consider. This guy Kelso is one of my favorite minor characters in the film because like he's clearly a genius. But he also seems like in his eyes and his mannerisms as threatening as anyone else in the film. Like, I feel like he could kill Macaulay in this scene if we wanted to. Yeah. I mean, he's in a wheelchair too. And somehow yeah. that, that effect is there. I love the moment, like he, he pitches him the job and he tells the, he tells him what the heist is worth. And when Macaulay accepts it, Kelso says, congratulations. <laughs> and I love that moment. And yeah. that word in that moment, it's yeah. so great. Yeah, it's like he just sold him a car. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> he's, uh, he's handing him the uh, the keys to his shiny new 1995 model bank robbery. Unfortunately, Val Kilmer's character is going to get $38 from this bank heist, <laughs> given how much he owes to his bookie. Yeah. This scene is uh, is also fun because there's cross-cutting between this scene and John Voight, like, who's, who's kind of like off in the distance. Like, yeah, I guess he like drove with Neil over to to meet this dude, and he's uh, he's on the cell phone talking to uh, Roger Van Zant, who is uh, played by uh, William Fitchner, and uh, this is the uh, the dude who owned those bearer bonds, and uh, and they are proposing to to sell them back to him. I, I like this uh, this actor quite a bit. The, I think my favorite role of his, aside from this film, is the bank manager in The Dark Knight. Uh, like he's when the uh, when the Joker is is uh, is pulling the bank heist in that film. He's like the bank manager that has a double barrel shotgun that <laughs> walks out and starts shooting at them, yelling like, "You know whose money you're trying to steal?" It's like almost exactly the same role, basically. <laughs> <laughs> like guy in a suit who is connected and doing organized crime shit. He's great. He's in a lot of things. He's How do really you get that as your type. <laughs> like... He was a real mid to late nineties. That guy. Yeah. I loved him in go as the guy who was hooked on confederated products. <laughs> Almost everything in this house is from confederated products from the toilet paper to the to, to the candles to the ham speaking of that guys his little right hand man hugh benny is played by henry rollins yeah <laughs> and like a pretty funny role for him i think just like tough that 
you know, wears like a suit jacket over his mock turtleneck and is like working in this office, but obviously is muscle. <laughs> You know, like I love how they use him here. What like, if you get like a temp job as a receptionist as, in this office, and you see that guy walking around? <laughs> I love not casting him as a skinhead or something. Like actually casting him as a as a white collar guy, a guy behind a guy. I think that's great. Yeah. Well, uh, Neil gets home from his uh, his bank heist meeting and finds Val Kilmer sleeping on his hardwood floor in his unfurnished house which is uh by the beach somewhere did you get a load of val kilmer's fucked up elbow in this scene oh i don't know if I oh did. ben please cue up this scene uh and take a gander at his left elbow oh wow which has a grapefruit sized knot in it damn what the hell I, evidently, he fucked it up while filming the doors. He did a like crowd surf scene, and then a uh, stunt guy didn't catch him, and so he whacked it, oh. and uh, and his elbow's never been the same. Wow. Yeah. I uh, I hit my elbow really hard riding my bike a few years ago, and you know it was like bad enough that I had to go to like a an urgent care and get it stitched up and X-rayed and stuff. But uh, that look that looks nasty. That looks like a real bad one. That looks like you need custom shirts. Like it's so <laughs> weird. Uh, I like that uh, that Neil calls Ashley Judd. Like the, the first thing he does is not wake up the friend that has invited himself into the house, but call calls Ashley Judd. And he's like, "What? <laughs> what was the fight about? Why is why is he sleeping on my floor? Like uh, not really your business, right?" No, but serves the character yeah. and us in relating them to each other. I feel like few films would have the confidence to stop the story right now and introduce us to someone totally new and then not return to them for another 40 minutes. And that's what happens in this next scene. We get to meet Donald Breeden, who's played by Dennis Haysbert. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's showing up to his first job after, uh, after being released from prison. He walks into this uh, this diner. This is like his his work release type of job. Like he's on probation, presumably, and his PO has set this up for him. the uh, The chef at the diner is Bud Court, who's fucking great in this movie. A yeah. he really sinks his teeth into a kind of villainy that is like it's. He's kind of the most detestable villain in the mm-hmm. film. Because he seems to have no no joy in his life and, you know, just he's just a cog in the wheel, but is is just totally happy to be that. Yeah. It's weird, you know, like he's, <laughs> he never kills anybody. Like, I, I would say that, like, he and Wayne Grow are the two people we are, are asked to hate the most by this film. And I don't yeah, know I why, see. I don't know why a guy who runs a diner and provides work release opportunities for people on probation. Is that <laughs> like, like he's a dick for sure. But, uh, but, but he like the way Bud court per- performs the character and like the text of the film is that he is like one of the worst people. He really is. He needs to be that so that you can understand Donald's decision later. Yeah. Because, like the thing about Donald is he's got that great lady friend and like he's they're really trying to make a, a good and fresh start. 
Yeah. Like what we're doing is we're setting him up to to make a fall later that that makes us feel something. And you and you can only do that by by setting him in opposition from this asshole at the diner. It's interesting cuz Wayne Grow is also clearly kind of a last minute hire for yeah. them and Yeah, they haven't had a good track record to these. <laughs> no. If only they had LinkedIn. <laughs> That's right, LinkedIn. Official sponsor of Greatest Gen. Yeah, I mean, they did officially sponsor us once, I think, and yeah. then never again. <laughs> they were like, big mistake on our part. Let's violate his ass right now. Give me all you got! Listen, Give me all you got! Me and my brother, man, my brother, my brother Rich is gonna talk to you. By the time listen, I get listen, to man, Phoenix, I swear, I swear, man, tonight's the best be I rising. can do you. will probably need a new right on the car. The next scene is... Uh, De Niro doing a little bit of multitasking. Um, he is talking to Roger Van Zant, setting up a meet so that he can sell these bearer bonds back to him, while also keeping an eye on Ashley Judd, who is uh, has checked herself into a motel and is kissing Hank Azaria goodbye while uh, wearing a garment that is clearly just thrown on to cover up her nakedness while she says goodbye to this guy. Maybe the most unbelievable part in the film is someone who looks like Hank Azaria <laughs> adultering around with someone who looks like Ashley Judd. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Hank Azaria would dispute that either. Like that, I'm not throwing shade at Hank Azaria, who's great, but this is peak Ashley Judd. She is like among the most spectacularly beautiful people in the world, and he is not. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, her hair... Uh, for being freshly fucked is fairly unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, is she... Did she, like, spend 30 seconds doing, like, the most amazing hair job on herself? Or... What are we to believe there? She's Maybe like, they just I'm, did it standing up. Yeah, I'm only... I'm only engaging in adultery if I can do it reverse cowgirl. <laughs> <laughs> Another great De Niro using misdirection to to get something. He uh, he shoves the housekeeping cart into the window at the at the motel and then knocks on the door. So you just see like from the inside the room the housekeeping cart push into the window and then you hear a knock on the door. Ashley Judd goes to open it and there's Neil, very angry and brokering a a peace in her relationship. Like you're gonna give. You're going to give Val Kilmer another shot. I can't have this guy at my empty house. Have you seen his elbow? It's fucking gross. <laughs> I try to choke down coffee, but I'm just, I got gag reflex looking at that elbow. I don't have a bed for me, let alone Val Kilmer and his weird elbow. <laughs> Hannah goes to K-Town for a meeting with uh, Richard Terena, which is the elder Terena brother. Yeah. Of the guy we met at the uh, at the wrecking yard, this is a this is a fun little scene here, Ben, and a part of L.A. that you and I have become very familiar with over Big the last fans. year or so. Yeah, the vibe as as Pacino enters here is that he's like down with so many of the people that work at this club. Like this is <laughs> this is a familiar territory for him. Like the head bouncer guy is like on crutches for some reason, and it's like. Joking around with him on his way in. Give me all your money. So I was wondering, you gonna get smoked with that shit? Oh, it's gonna be you fool. You gotta 
respect somebody's work ethic when they're told the meeting is tomorrow at 2 a.m. And they're like, all right, be there, (laughs) you know? This is the other bookend to that scene in the wrecking yard. And it's so great because Albert is dying. Like Albert gave up Richard for this scene. And the information that he's giving to Hannah is substandard. It is not good. And not only that, Richard wants a deal. Like he wants uh, he wants Hannah to knock over some, uh, some wrecking yard competition for him in exchange yeah. for this information that he wants to give him. And Pacino's character could not be more irate at what's happening. <laughs> I know, like, how fucking incautious are you as a guy who steals cars for a living to, like, get mad at the police officer that you're leaking information about other car thieves to? The most uncomfortable part of this to me is that Hannah doesn't get mad at Richard. He gets mad at Albert. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> I mean... I think Pacino has a very singular driving desire in this film is that he doesn't want anybody to waste his motherfucking time. <laughs> and uh, and this scene really smacks of that. I don't want to know if I tell you what you need to know, you're going to do what the fuck I need to get done. The moment in this scene where it turns around for Richard, he's like, he's saying that, uh, you know, he ran into a guy he used to be in jail with, and he didn't say anything, so he's very suspicious that something is definitely going on with that guy. And, and like, you know, as far as actionable intelligence goes, that it leaves a lot to be desired. But Richard Pepper's in the word slick. Hey, I'm telling you, man, this slick is no motherfucking joke, man. You know what I'm saying? Say what? Say what? What? You said slick. What does that mean? Slick. That's what he calls people. Slick. He gets a name out of Richard, and that name... Chirito. Michael Chirito. Gets them onto the case in a big way. They've got the jacket on Michael Chirito. They, they uh, you know, have known accomplices. They've got... Uh, they, you know, they kick the surveillance into high gear. And so the game is afoot, Adam. F- 50 minutes into the film, the game is afoot. One guy who is playing a terrible game of checkers against chess players is Van Sant, who has orchestrated a drop, and uh, whenever you do a film in L.A., you must do a scene in an abandoned drive-in movie theater, Ben, Yeah, which is where this drop takes place, and uh, to say it does not go well is a spectacular understatement. Yeah. If you don't shoot a scene in an abandoned drive-in movie theater parking lot in L.A., you're just going to look at the shitty condo that they're building in that space you know, six months later and regret it. So you do it if you have the opportunity. 1995 me was maybe the most blown away by how the driver of the white truck goes out in this scene. (laughs) So uh, Macaulay pulls up next to this guy in the white truck. And the idea is the guy in the white truck is going to throw the, uh, throw the cash into the car in order to, to, to buy back the bearer bonds for Van Sant. Except uh, there's a guy in the back of the truck that hops out in an effort to kill Macaulay, and Macaulay sees this in process, and then like squishes him between the two cars. So that yeah. guy, that guy gets fucked up pretty bad. Like, there's so much about this scene is like incredibly specific that I don't understand. Like, the guy in the white, like the white truck itself, is a weird choice. Like the the crew cab, you know, wide wide wheelbase 
white pickup truck that yeah, this the guy Dooley like truck. slips out the back of the guy Does anyone dri- drive a dually in la that's so weird <laughs> the guy driving looks like he sells insurance for a living the guy that comes out of the back is he, he just like looks like so such a hardened criminal in comparison to the guy doing the driving that it's unbelievable Hard to pick who goes out worse here. There's like mid 90s gunfire aesthetic where the guy who hopped out of the back of the truck is like held upright by the bullets he's being shot by <laughs> from uh, from Val Kilmer on a on a on a rooftop yeah. a half a mile away. Yeah. But he also gets run over by yeah. by Macaulay's car, which is great. The guy in the truck gets it maybe the worst. So Chirito's waiting on ground level and catches the pickup truck driving by and with a pump action shotgun just mutilates the driver. And maybe the best part of this scene is the driver ghost rides itself <laughs> in a slow motion collision with a concrete wall at the end. Yeah. And there's something so much more fucked up about a collision that happens at like 10 miles an hour with a dead guy at the wheel than, than it would have been if... Like in a lot of action set pieces, I think you would have set the truck to flip over and explode or whatever. But there's something so dark about the truck just coasting and then stopping against that that concrete wall. Seriously. They all pile into into the Suburban together, having pulled open the package of money and found that it's just full of like printer paper from Van Zandt's office. Van Zandt picks up a phone and, and for some reason they're in the kitchen of a restaurant to to do this call. Like there's so many great like uh, we just chose to set this scene in the in the kitchen of a restaurant for yeah. reasons. And uh, and Macaulay is like uh, one one of my favorite lines of the film. What, what are you doing? What do you mean? Forget the money. What am I doing? I'm talking to an empty telephone. I don't understand. Because there was a dead man on the other end of this fucking line. That line sounds so much like like a dad coming up with a way to make fun of someone. Like saying he's <laughs> talking to an empty telephone just sounds like someone who's reaching for an insult. Yeah. I love that. It seems like it's made up on the spot is my point. It really does. But he like De Niro, like nobody can deliver a line like that better than De Niro, yeah. right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's like maybe the only scene in the film where Henry Rollins also just looks like he has no idea what to do with his hands. Yeah. <laughs> like it's such a colossal fuck up that uh that he like when he and Van Zant exchange looks, it's like they're embarrassed at how at how badly that went. Maybe we're not cut out for this cops and robbers shit. Maybe we should get square jobs. This sets up the thing that happens later, too, because the only scenes you see of Roger Van Zandt are of him in in his workplace. Uh, his his collars are crisp and everything is clean. But at every point after this, it's it's a growing amount of un, unhingedness yeah. for him and paranoia that, that is really great. Well, it's been a long time since we've checked in with Wayne Grow, and uh, in case you didn't think he was the worst human being of all time already, there's a scene in which he finishes having sex with a prostitute and then murders her. Uh, And then we get, like, the scene where all of the crooks 
aside from him are, are like out to dinner and uh they're uh you know they're like leaving the restaurant and uh, you know because of getting the name michael chirito the cops are up on almost everybody like they've they've got surveillance up on chirito trejo and and chris they haven't they haven't nailed neil yet but they're going to and uh, it's a funny scene where I, I don't know why they would have, but they just like got all of the cops up on the rooftop of the Chinese restaurant across the street from the yeah. restaurant they're all eating at to uh, to just like, I guess, look at them in the flesh to identify them. And uh, one of the things I love most about this film is like how much symmetry there is between the cops and the criminals. Like we get a couple of family dinner scenes in this film and this is one of them and and this is the one with the gang yeah but we get another one later with all of the police detectives together and i really love those scenes quite a bit yeah it's They're, like it's such a, the, the police detective scene is is great it's a little weird because it's like it's like a very fancy seeming party like it seems mm-hmm. fancier than people that you know work for the city would party but that's uh, their Christmas dinner, Ben, and that is what makes this a Christmas movie. Isn't that beautiful? Or didn't you know? <laughs> that scene with Wayne and the hooker is maybe the darkest part of a dark film, but it's I think it's crucial in showing us that Pacino's character can have a genuine human interaction with someone, and the saddest part is that the one person he's able to bond with is the hooker's mother. Like that scene in the parking lot where they embrace yeah. is like maybe the the deepest, like the most humanity Pacino's character is capable of showing and he can't show it to anyone in his family. Instead, he shows it uh, to a grieving mother. And I think that's another great way to describe how broken he is, right? Because he leaves the party that the cops are all at to go work that work that crime scene. Yeah. And it's bookended by him spending time with his wife. And, you yes. know, in the... And that's, and that's so intentional. Like, he goes back to the party, and she's, like, the last person there, and she's just been sitting waiting for him. Yeah. And after he's had this incredibly tender and gut-wrenching, but sort of... In a, in a way, beautiful interaction with the hooker's mother. Uh, you know, he's he's back with his wife, and she's like, what happened to you? And he, he has, he's a super smart guy, so he can rationalize all of the reasons that he's emotionally distant, you know, ad nauseum. And he really does in this scene. Yeah. I told you when we hooked up, baby, that you were going to have to share me with all the bad people and all the ugly events on this planet. And I bought into that sharing. That scene where he says, like, you know, he he needs to be emotionally and distant and not tell her what he works on for a living because that's what keeps him sharp is, I think, kind of the the first sign that their relationship is probably irredeemable. Right. Yeah, and as his relationship to his wife is falling apart, uh, Macaulay and Edie are getting closer. Yeah. In kind of an unlikely way. Yeah, because he, he blows in a call to her while he and the and the buds are out at a restaurant. It's like, it's one of those scenes where there are, 
you know, there's a big group of people around the table and he's the only person that's not a member of a couple. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that was probably an awkward dinner for him for that reason. And, uh, and so he wants to get closer to Edie and he calls her up and, uh, and they have, sets uh, up a booty call for later. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he also like starts kind of like peppering in the idea that, uh, he, you know, might want to like take her to the other side of the planet for reasons, <laughs> you know, like he talks about New Zealand, right? In this scene. I mean, it's the only place to find that iridescent algae, Ben. <laughs> she's worried that he's like mysterious married man that she's, she's seeing or something like that. He's yeah. like, no, I don't even have furniture, much less a wife. The only reason I haven't brought you by is because you might run into my weirdly elbowed friend. (laughs) Real gross out. (laughs) Ben, we haven't seen Natalie Portman in a long time. And, uh, like, here's the thing. Do you think Hannah is looking for Natalie Portman's character, or does he happen to just be driving by and he sees her? I wonder about that, too. She's, like, literally just sitting on a bus bench, and he drives by, and they do the super illegal middle of the middle of the boulevard u-turn that cops feel entitled to do and yeah like she i guess i don't know ran away from home a little bit i love natalie portman and i love her in this movie but you don't need this storyline is what i'm going to say about it like i think there is there is a ton to care about in this film and because Hannah's life is so broken in so many different ways. I feel like this is the fifth main way that his life is broken. The movie doesn't place any responsibility for her at his feet. Yeah. And I think it should. Like, he eventually takes some responsibility, but it's when he has no choice. Yeah. And, like, he's he's not her father, but he's her stepfather. And he... Here's what I'm going to say. Like, if... If you show him just making his wife miserable and there isn't a kid involved, yeah, he is. He never gets like a save the cat opportunity. He never gets a chance to redeem himself. But like that's not a good enough reason for this character to be treated as badly as she is. Yeah, I think. I mean, we're given so much of her story and yet we're never given like we never return to her later on in the film after her suicide attempt like we we don't know if she's going to be okay we don't know if any of these people are going to be okay so why we never we never go through a beginning middle and end with her yeah which makes me question why we are getting a a beginning and a middle yeah that's uh it feels unfinished with her i guess is is my point if she was going to be such a such a focus. Anyway, I don't know. Um, all that is to say is, as much as I love Heat, I think there are parts of the film that that I don't love. One part I do love is the middle heist. Yeah, they've clocked Chirito going by a uh, precious metal stash a few times, so they they've uh, they've got it in mind that that's what the gang is is looking at next. And we've heard some talk about this. Not seen much planning or anything, but, uh, you know, much like the first heist, we, we see the gang show up and, like, just get to work and, like, they all know exactly what they're doing. Um, but this time, Pacino and a bunch of cops are 
sitting in a you know 14 foot cube truck watching everything on surveillance video and we get a little round the horn of all these you know special weapons cops you know clinging to the side of chevy yukons and like hiding under heaps of garbage and stuff like the like they're ready to to storm this place the second these guys make their make their score and that's uh that's going to be bad news for them so chorito is up the phone pole like cutting the the uh the alarm connection or whatever uh val kilmer is inside drilling into a safe and neil goes out to just stand in the shadows and keep an eye on the street and uh, a uh one of the swat guys is in the cube truck with neil and and uh the major crimes guys and he like tries to like sit down against the edge of the truck he makes a big bump and uh neil hears this bump and he just gets spooked he like he he sees it for the threat it is he walks in tells kilmer to shut it down and they walk away from the job they leave the drill in situ and get out of there and, uh, How'd you like to show up for work at the Precious Metals Depository the next day and see like the drill <laughs> and all of that gear, and everything is still where it was left? I know there's like there's a scene a little bit later where they're walking into where Hank Azaria works and it's like a big warehouse and I was like yeah and and it always fools me that they're gonna go look at like where they were doing the drilling because uh, you never get that like you never get a sense of this space at all which I really like that it's just kind of like a weird hallway that has some safes in it or something. Right. And, uh, and like they're like the crew is gone before you get to see what they were going to steal or anything. There's like a tense moment where the captain of the SWAT team, like really wants to go, you know, bust some melons or whatever. And Pacino has to like talk him out of it. I'm not taking the heat from my bosses because you let them go. They're not walking. That's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to walk. This is my operation. I have tactical command that supersedes your rank. They will walk away, and you will let them. Fuck! This might be the moment where I kind of part with Pacino in this film. Because I think if you get these guys off the street for six months... That's six months of people they don't have a chance to kill. Right. And, like, the next heist is, like, so incredibly bloody that it might be hindsight... 2020 but i think uh i think if you can get them off the streets you get them off the streets right you know what it's such a great point that you made but the film does not make that point after the after the heist (laughs) if one person if drucker had been like holy shit man i think we probably should have taken these guys off the street two days ago like drucker would for sure be the one to say that because i think in a lot of ways he's like the conscience of the police squad yeah um, no one would flip that shit to Hannah, though. But I think yeah. I think Hannah would accept it as being the truth. I think Hannah knows that. <laughs> Do you think Hannah wouldn't prefer if that shootout didn't happen? No, I, I think so. I think I think he would. Yeah. Back to work. They do bust into Hank Azaria's office. They've brought somebody from the uh, Nevada Police Department. I don't know how they had a crime to threaten him with having to pay for like they just happen to know that he like stole a truckload of cigarettes i love this scene with azaria this is a film that rarely introduces a character without paying them off later and this 
I mean, that scene in the hotel where you see Azaria in telephoto is like not the last time, obviously, because you get him here and then you get him in the third act. Yeah. It's another great opportunity for Pacino to act as cokey as possible. <laughs> it really is. Part of what makes Drucker so great is he never acts big. Like, he lets Pacino do that. Yeah, he is so understated while Pacino is going like, She's got a great ass! And you got your head all the way up it! I love that. I love that they're not trying to compete in that way. It only it only makes them both better. What do you think Drucker thinks of his boss? I mean, I don't know. I, I think in many ways, Drucker's the adult in the room. Yeah. Like, I, if I worked in that unit, I would probably rarely ever want to talk to Lieutenant Hannah about anything. I would always bring it to Drucker. Drucker's kind of managing up, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reason they visit uh, the Marciano character is because they want to uh, use him and his relationship with Charlene uh, to get more information on uh, on Chris and the gang. So they put him to work, and um, and uh, they I think they got onto him because he's been uh, blowing in dirty phone calls to Charlene. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, so and they're and they're tapping Chris and Charlene's phones. So, in the uh, director's cut that I got, Ben, uh, you get to hear some of those calls. Oh yeah, and uh, they're just all of him doing Simpsons voices, like <laughs> phone sex Simpsons voices. Super fun. <laughs> have you ever wanted to have phone sex with Mo Sislak? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the gang goes down to uh, the port of Los Angeles and uh, plans, presumably plans a job. And we get to see the cops like shooting, shooting those, uh, those football microphones at them. Those big like Mm -hmm. parabolic microphones that you see at football games. They're like aiming down at uh, at these guys. And then uh, the second they clear out, the cops like go down to like the spot they were standing to see what, if they can figure out what heist they're trying to plan. Another of my favorite lines in this movie, because uh, they're like standing there trying to puzzle through it. They're looking at all the things that you can see from this spot and nothing seems like it's worth robbing. A refinery in a scrapyard. What the hell is going on? Pacino starts going like, what are, what are they looking at? What are they looking at? And Bosco goes, well, that's what we're trying to figure out. <laughs> I, think, I think about that every single day. <laughs> I've I've heard you tell me that line in that way over and over again while we've been on tour. Anytime, Every time I ask a dumb question. Anytime we're trying to figure something out, that is in yeah. my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the moment that uh, underscores a lot of the like professional symmetry between the cops and the criminals, right? The cops aren't just trying to gather intel on the criminals. It's uh, It's also useful for the criminals to understand the cops that are chasing them yeah a little counter intel and uh and it's actually de niro up on the up on the like catwalk with a newtonian telephoto with, lens taking with like, like a canon a1 <laughs> yeah. taking uh taking pictures of all these cops which he then later gets like dossiers on from uh from john voight oh from from nate nate well yeah i know him as john voight right they got made, Adam. They got made in the shade. We are halfway through this movie. 
know. We haven't even we haven't even switched tapes yet. I'm gonna need to make a pee break and uh, another drink. All right. Well, uh, do you wanna do you wanna make that here? I think this is the tape switching moment. Uh, I actually read that the the tape switch happens after the diner meeting. Oh, do you want to? Not true. But I can't make it that far. Let's just do it now. Let's just do it now. LAPD, gee, what? Where the fuck did this heat come from? Maybe it's the score they're on to. Place, not us. Assume they got our phones, assume they got our houses, assume they got us right here, right now, as we sit. Everything, assume it all. Well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. Well, we already knew that Pacino's marriage wasn't going great, but <laughs> he comes home from uh, from his big fun day and finds uh, his wife uh, getting ready for a night on the town. And when he discovers that it's her night and he's not invited, <laughs> he heads back out and uh, hops in a helicopter. And uh, it in, in fairly short order, he has like swapped helicopter for car and... It is pulling Neil over on the highway and uh, <laughs> invites him out for a cup of coffee. How you doing? What do you say I buy you a cup of coffee? Yeah, sure, let's go. Follow me. It's a scene that had special intensity for me because of how much like traffic stops are in the news lately. Right. And, like, they both are strapped, like, there are guns at play, and yet they are so chill when they talk to each other, you know? Like, I think Neil's, like, a little bit nervous. Vincent is, like, chewing gum. He's like, hey, you want to go get a cup of coffee? Well, I think there's no there's no greater <laughs> privilege for a couple of white guys than, than pullover privilege, right? Yeah, exactly. And, like, I think that scene plays differently now, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. They have this conversation, and, and it's pretty wide-ranging. Like, this scene has, like, a bunch of beats, and it's not necessarily, like, the obvious Pacino-De Niro scene. Especially because, like, the trailer for Heat made the film about this moment. Like, you're yeah. finally going to get Pacino and De Niro across a diner booth from each other. Like, this is the moment. And I'm so glad that they made it a little deeper than what you might think. The stuff from the trailer is in it, right? Like this the idea that I'm a cop, I'm gonna catch robbers, I'm gonna I'm a robber, I'm gonna rob robberies. And like like we're two guys that are committed to doing what we do is in there. Like, you know, like they both talk about like what their concept of like being normal or or regular would be like. What the fuck is that? Barbecues and ball games? And I was like, oh, cool. I like barbecues and ball games. I guess I'm a normal. <laughs> but they have a conversation that I don't tend to have with even my closest friends, which is like, what would you like out of your life? They can really cut to the quick of it. And Pacino has a surprisingly high amount of insight about how miserable he's making the people around him mm -hmm. in this scene. Like, he doesn't quite understand that he's also making his stepdaughter miserable. Right. But he understands that he's making his wife miserable and that it's his fault for the first time in the movie. And 
De Niro's kind of on the opposite side of that spectrum. And he, like, he talks about the idea of being willing to walk away from anything in his life in 30 seconds flat. And he's like really proud of that part of himself in a way that like, I think in this moment he becomes a less likable character. And I think that's the right thing to happen here. Like we've been kind of a little bit rooting for him and his gang up until this moment. And when he talks about the fact that he's in a relationship, but that he would walk away from it immediately it it makes it it makes us not like him and and it sets up the question of is that true you know mm. like does he say that to the cop or does he really believe it well i think you're made to understand the degree to which that may be true later on through the choices he makes nearing the end i mean the scene did a lot for me in painting them as such similar figures because like, I think, I don't know who makes this case, but like what someone like Hannah has to sacrifice in his personal life in order to catch people like Macaulay feels a lot like how perfect someone like Macaulay needs to be in order to be a criminal and not get caught. Like yeah. they both involve such great personal sacrifices in order to maintain the lifestyle that they're interested in living. A lifestyle that that both of them come to appreciate in themselves and each other. Right. They even talk about the dreams that they have. It's a really wild scene. Yeah, I mean, Macaulay just won't shut up about this iridescent algae. He's telling everyone. Have you done any research on this movie? Like, I... I like both the scene where Neil explains I'm from the Bay Area and also this scene make me wonder like was it Pacino and De Niro when they were writing the script like did they know who they were writing for I can tell you that Pacino and De Niro were the first choices to play Hannah and Macaulay but I don't know if those parts were written specifically for them do you think they flipped a coin to pick who would play which part <laughs> I'm really glad this is how those parts played out, though. Oh, yeah, I, I am, too. I just think you, you you have him say, like, I grew up in Brooklyn in that in that scene, and so much more of it would make sense to me. Right, right. A great bit of business is happening concurrently to this, which is all of the bugs and surveillance is being thrown off from Macaulay's crew as they're having this diner interaction. yeah. And, like, simultaneously, like, <laughs> Pacino gets back to the precinct and they're like, hey, they dropped us, so we don't know where they are or what they're doing anymore. And he's like, unpack that for me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like, the tails got slipped, the the bugs got, you know, put on a bus to Santa Clarita. Yeah. <laughs> and Neil switched cars right after they got the, their cup of coffee, so... The bad guys are in the wind. One bad guy who hasn't chosen who hasn't chosen to go into the wind is Wayne Grove, who yeah. takes a meeting with Van Sant, which also serves to tell us how desperate Van Sant is to stay alive. Because yeah. aligning himself with Wayne Grove is, is basically the worst thing that anyone can do. Yeah, and and Van Sant is also 
obviously super shook at this point. Like, we haven't seen him since the botched killing Neil attempt that he pulled. But he's like, you know, he's got three days of stubble on his face. He's like in a dirty shirt. He's been sleeping at the office. He's fucking terrified. Yeah. And making irrational decisions as a result. So uh, they have their breakfast meeting before their big big heist and uh they discover that trejo is uh has been compromised by the police they picked up his tail again so they are their driver is not in the picture for the job that they have and the job has to happen uh on this day because they've already like installed all the all the computer circuitry and stuff in the bank that will uh will enable them to pull this heist without being caught on camera and without the bank calling calling the cops effectively. So they happen to be in the cafe that uh, Dennis Haysbert's character is working in, and uh, they, they like, you know, sitting there, De Niro recognizes him from having done bids together in the past. Mm-hmm. So he walks into the kitchen. He's like, hey, you want to walk away from this and give it all up for a life of crime? And he's like, yeah, I fucking hate my boss. Let's do it. I love how, like, Robert De Niro goes on and on about his 30 seconds flat philosophy to people. Yeah. He never, to our knowledge, tells Dennis Haysbert's character this, but he's living it. Like, <laughs> Haysbert's really ready to drop that shitty jab in 30 seconds. Are you in good hands? It's sad for this character, right? Like, his arc is a real indictment of, you know, the way the criminal justice system works. Like, we don't know what he did. But he's like out and trying to make an honest go of it for himself. And it's like way shittier than it needs to be, you know? It's like punitively shitty. It's like he's still getting punished even though he's out of jail. Right. I think it's crucial that we don't know what Donald did to go to prison and be released. That that makes us root for him the way we do. Like if he were a terrible person who was guilty of a terrible crime, we might feel differently. But... Uh, he and his lady friend are very sympathetic characters. Where do you think you're going? Ben, I have a question for you, and that is uh, the morning of a bank heist, uh-huh. which I think would qualify as like some rigorous physical activity. What do you order at the diner? I, d- I don't think you get the full platter of biscuits <laughs> and gravy, right? Probably want yeah. to go with something light, like some cantaloupe. You don't get the size more special. Yeah. <laughs> I've thought a lot about this breakfast watching uh, heat as often as I have. Like, God, what do you eat? You just want to go pure protein, I bet, right? I guess. I mean, I feel like too much protein and you're full, you know? Yeah. I guess the one time you see the table, it's pretty empty, right? Like, they don't, they're just, they might just be having coffees. I mean, this is definitely not the type of... Oh, that's almost es- worse. Not the type of establishment you go to for pastries, I don't think. No. Well, no, but- Adam, a coffee isn't the death sentence for butt stuff for everyone else that it is for you. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, those bags of cash look really heavy. I don't want a leaker on my yeah. hands. They recruit their dude. There are like a couple of brief check-ins with uh you know other other characters that we like like Edie and Charlene but uh it's like it's pretty much off to the races like we are we are now in the heist for a long time it's a it is a big extendo sequence and uh it's like a 
it's it's so weird to watch this now because like since this since I moved to LA, like the areas that are depicted in this heist scene are like places I walk past like right. frequently. And it's all like downtown LA, which makes it all the more confusing later when you see like a news report and they say a Southland neighborhood was hit <laughs> by a bank robber. A neighborhood? I don't think that you ever refer to downtown as a neighborhood. <laughs> I love how clockwork the heist is. It is uh, it's as clockwork as the first uh, bank truck heist only only at a far larger scale yeah they're stealing like 12 million cash they've got uh they've all got jobs like everybody knows what the plan is like it's a movie that never shows you the planning it just but you believe that there's a great plan because they're always you know everybody always knows exactly what to do it's weird that val kilmer's character brings his bookie in with him but i think it just makes more sense to give the money directly to him at this point <laughs> yeah. it's less for him to carry yeah crazy tony is standing right there with his leather bound <laughs> book and <laughs> his crazy gold chain just waiting for waiting for uh, val kilmer to pinch you know a few stacks off the top uh. this is one of those this is so loud scenes yeah and I'm surprised that this wasn't a technique that was bitten by every movie that followed. Very few films choose to go this volume with the gunfire. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. I've heard that Michael Mann is a little bit hard of hearing and has a lot to do with how his films are mixed. Oh, interesting. And and that there's... I mean, this is a consistent thing across his films. Like, I have this... Less with Last of the Mohicans and more from with Heat and everything after it. You know, like Miami mm-hmm. Vice and what's the the Collateral? Dillinger movie Collateral. I, I mean, they all have parts where like two people are talking for you know, like you get a five minute scene of two people talking. You're like, I can't fucking hear this, and then the next scene is like a helicopter taking off and it's like ear splitting. <laughs> right. I'm not usually one for like the midnight normalization mode on your AV gear, but right. a Michael Mann film is one of the only times I could see that being a credible way to watch a film. Yeah. And like whatever the opposite of motion flow is for the yeah. after dark parts where Dante Spinati shot it on 60 frames per second. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Heist goes pretty well. They uh, uh, Chirito gets into the car, which is idling uh, on the corner, and like the the cops like have been sitting there with their thumb in their ass since everything got dumped. But like a somebody comes into their into their section of the police department is like, hey, like a CI called in with a a tip about some some kind of heist that's going on. And, uh, and it's actually happening right now. <laughs> like literally right now. Uh, and and Benny, we hear Benny get get name checked in that scene, which is the Henry Rollins character. I'm not quite sure how Wayne Grove knows about the bank job. Yeah, that's a question to me too. Unclear. Maybe maybe he knows through Nate. Maybe Nate is like the one person that like really respects Wayne Grove and is like <laughs> still giving him lots of information. Boy, if that's true, that's a terrible look for Nate. <laughs> a, a man who already looks terrible. <laughs> a, a terrible look for a terrible looking man. I like it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, the uh, so so this enables them to uh, set up a late late in the game jump on on the heist crew, and so and it's literally literally takes the form of like Neil and Chris are walking out with giant black duffel bags full of cash, and you know assault rifles and Pacino and all the other cops are like running down the street with shotguns and shit. (laughs) I feel like in, in most other bank heist scenes, you get bags of loose money or bricks of money of a scale that are manageable, but try to imagine like the biggest duffel bag you could ever buy off the shelf amount of bricked cash. This is an unfathomable amount of money to be seen in a in a heist film at yeah. the time or since you just never see this much i love how they do it too like the like the bricks are like out on the table and they've got bags like i don't know how you anticipate this but maybe there yeah. maybe there's like a standard way that you pack it so that they've got bags that like val kilmer literally is like it, he like it's like a fitted sheet over the money you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, and, and uh, he's got to loosen the money to make it carryable. Right. Yeah. So he like cuts through the the shrink wrap on the outside of it. Uh, because the cops show up, and because Val Kilmer notices them, he starts opening fire, and it is one of the most intense gunfights in movie history. And uh, if you know, you know, if you didn't notice how great the sound effects were in that first heist scene. It is impossible to ignore in this scene because it really does sound like it was, you know, like this is all like downtown LA, like the Weston Bonaventure and the, you know, Central Library and stuff. And like you can hear the fucking gun gunfire like echoing off the buildings and it's super intense. Yeah, there's something about that echo that makes that makes the location of where the shots are coming from a mystery and it's what makes the scene so scary to a bystander or a viewer yeah like all you're hearing is sonically the sound of the gunfire but because you can't place it it's it's all equally scary yeah it's a really intense scene it's a scene that uh i thought a lot about from like a liability standpoint because there is you know, like the bad guys are shooting and the cops are shooting and there are a lot of civilians just wandering around screaming and stuff. Yeah. I mean, like there's like, it gets a little implausible at a certain point. Cause like they run like one block and find like a grocery store where people are still just like happily going about their shopping business. And I think that if you've heard three sustained minutes of high intensity semi-automatic gunfire you might like stop shopping and take refuge somewhere (laughs) if you're going to ralph's you've made your choices yeah i guess yeah uh tia this is america god uh bosco goes out in fairly short order and ugly yeah which is unfortunate it's a great death moment though like he he, the look of shock that he has on his face when he goes down and then is like frozen on his face is so intense and like and almost everybody gets shot in this scene (laughs) like not that many people don't get a bullet and it's a seeing pacino like charge up seventh street or whatever it is in in l in downtown la and 
you know, take cover behind a car and, and lick shots like this is is really wild. It's very different yeah. for him. I mean, for uh, for a, a criminal plan, so much of this is is militaristic, right? Like yeah. you've got you've got uh, Pacino and De Niro's character using weapons of war, basically, in a plan that is that is as well thought out as any military siege operation. Yeah. There was I think this is I think this sequence is based a little bit on this actual heist that happened in LA. I think it was I think it was in like North Hollywood or something in this in the seventies. I might be misremember I might be conflating two things, but there was like Yeah, I read that this film actually gave some people an idea about how to do it and then that oh, was really? done. Yeah. Wow. Th- like this is not an unprecedented kind of bank robbery, but you never see it yeah. like this in film, you know. In uh in 97 there was something known as the North Hollywood shootout and it oh, was Oh, that a, must be uh, yeah, I must be confusing cuz well there yeah, I think there's like two like really famous bank robberies in LA and one was in the 70s and one was in the 90s. Mhm. I can't remember which one, but one of them, like the guys that were going to do it had all the guns in their car and got pulled over for some other shit. Hmm. And the cops like found their guns, but they were like, you're allowed to have guns. And then like two days later, they did this like crazy bank robbery and killed a ton of people. It's like, okay. (laughs) I guess that's just how it is. TIA. We get a Jeremy Piven sighting after the uh, high scene, Ben. He's pulling bullets out of uh, the Val Kilmer character. I love pre-ego Piven. Yeah. Yeah, the Piven that that didn't shave his body. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's a real guy doing that work. That guy doesn't look like he would claim to have gotten mercury poisoning from eating far too much sushi. And he's great. He's 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 fucking great in this scene. Val Kilmer is bringing a tombstone amount of sickness to his performance from here on out. He is, I think, uniquely able to look and act like someone who has been shot and is in septic shock. Yeah, I think uh, I think De Niro was looking at him and it was it was like, God, I got to try and do that one day, but like up the ante by also performing surgery on myself <laughs> that's where we got ronin yeah ronin's yeah. a christmas movie oh is that is that next year is that what you're proposing <laughs> you read the terrain you search for signs of passing the scent of your prey and then you hunt them down that's the only thing you're committed to i preserve it because i need it it keeps me sharp on the edge where i gotta be the only person that they can think of that would have given up their plan is Trejo, played by Danny Trejo, car- cleverly named character. Do you think that do you think that they had Danny Trejo in mind when they wrote the script? I don't know. I think I think <laughs> you, you think- always have Danny Trejo in mind for parts like these. Yeah. But I wonder if like if the character still would have been named Trejo if they couldn't get Danny Trejo. You know? Like if Danny Trejo had been cast in something else, if, he, if he'd been cast as Batman and was just too busy. I think if you can't get Danny Trejo, you want to honor Danny Trejo with a character name at least. Yeah. 
man, now I'm just obsessed with the idea of Danny Trejo playing Batman. Wouldn't that be fucking awesome? <laughs> Danny Trejo dies ugly in this scene. Yeah. And uh, it is and really gets, rugged. And gets mercy killed by Macaulay at the end of it. It's a movie that shows a lot of very violent images. And there's a certain dignity in the way they show him going out because he he begs to be put out of his misery. You know, he doesn't believe he's going to make it. And uh, they cut to the exterior of his house and just show the muzzle flash in the window when Neil kills him. They're all living pretty high on the hog. It's a great looking yeah. house. Yeah, that's one of those. Uh, that's one of those falls off the side of the hill in the earthquake kind of houses. <laughs> He's got a BoJack Horseman house. He really does. He and BoJack have a lot in common in that way. So a lot of these loose threads are starting to get clipped at this point. Uh, the yeah. only the only two uh, pieces left on the board unresolved are Wayne Grow and Van Zant. Ben. Yeah, and Trejo was not really being followed by the cops. They got leverage on him because they abducted his girlfriend or wife or whatever, and he gave him up. So this is all leading back to Van Zant, and Neil is like... So do you think when Treo called the morning of the heist, uh, he was or wasn't being honest about his circumstance? Do you think at that point it was true that he was being tailed and then later he was flipped? No, or he was, was not that a being, lie? I think he was lying. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I mean, I think he was lying because he was trying to save his lady. But, you know, and like, and that's an interesting point, right? Like we've, we talked about like the idea that Chris could be manipulated because he has gambling debts, but he also has uh, Ashley Judd and like, and they all have women that they love. And Neil's like ethos really stands in conflict with the idea of having strong connections with other people. Treo gets in line that I think is emblematic of everyone in the crew's feeling for Macaulay, which is at the end of that phone call when he says, the last thing I want to do is disappoint you. I thought that was so poignant. And like you see depictions of criminals that, that don't respect each other in that way. But when he said that, I really felt it. I mean, that's like, when I've had, you know, jobs that I couldn't, you know, if you get booked on a shoot and then you have to drop out, yeah. like that's a big deal. And you feel that exact emotion. Like I don't, I don't want the producer that calls me to come direct something to think I'm unreliable. Yeah. This feels terrible. Yeah. So Pacino busts into Henry Rollins's place and throws him through a sliding glass door. That's fun. And now Henry Rollins is on Team Pacino. You, Benny, has reformed his wayward life and become a born-again good citizen. He kind of lets lets the whole cat out of the bag. And uh, <laughs> there's a very fun, like, super expository Pacino phone call back to base where he's like, Roger Van Zant is dead. <laughs> and his little buddy, Benny, is now helping us. <laughs> I want you to put out that Wayne Grow has checked into the Marquis Hotel under the name Jameson. Where did Wayne Grow get that kind of money? I presume Van Zant paid him fairly handsomely for the information. Yeah, I guess so. That does that does pencil out. But Wayne Grow also seems to have like 
hotel swag. Like, like there's the person that's in the nice hotel for the first time in their life and like doesn't quite know how to do it. And then there's what Wayne Grow is doing, which is like putting on the, you know, the 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 bathrobe immediately and like, you know, calling room service and like he really like does hotel. Uh, my wife puts on the robe. I I don't like the hotel robe. I don't really? wear the robe. Are you are you a rober? I like the hotel robe so much that for my birthday this year, my birthday gift from my wife was a nice hotel style bathrobe. Wow. Wow, that's nice. Like with the waffle terry cloth, waffle knit terry cloth. I'm familiar, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I enjoy it. That's nice. It's nice and breezy on my undercarriage. As Wayne Grow has checked into a hotel, so too has Charlene checked into a safe house under the care of, uh, of Sergeant Drucker. Yeah, this is probably the most political scene in the film. I mean... It's a pretty, like, omniscient narrator type of piece. And I don't think it's that political, but Sergeant Drucker is kind of, like, exercising a bunch of leverage over Charlene by basically saying, like, if you don't help us nab your husband, then we're going to charge you with all the same shit we're charging him with. And you're going to go to jail. And your son is going to, therefore, grow up in the system. And... He's going to be in foster care and like group homes and stuff. And then he'll have a fucked up life. If you don't help us nab your husband, you're basically guaranteeing that your son will have a miserable life. And it's a very powerful indictment of... Of a system that he works for. The system that he works in. Yeah. yeah. It's a system that he works in, but he's also the salesman of it. Like he, That's the position yeah. he takes in it. What else are you selling? All kinds of shit. But I don't have to sell this, and you know it, because this kind of shit here sells itself. It's like the opposite of what we think of America as, right? It's like you try to imagine your society as being a society that works for you and not a society that you work for. Yeah. And, it, and the second you hear it described this way, you're like, oh, basically, none of us have any power and... Like, we all have to hew incredibly close to to a very particular line, or we're miserable. Yeah. And, like, and we're, like, guaranteeing misery for our, you know, for our children, too. This is a moment so far upriver in that, in that decision tree that doesn't have any branches at all. Yeah. It's very intense. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and... It makes it seem it like I think what I love about it is that Drucker is like a like that's a real type of guy who yeah. understands the realities of the system and is like super sanguine about him and also continues to operate within it. And you like your takeaway is like, well, she's definitely going to betray Chris. Like she has to, she has no yeah. choice, but to betray Chris. It's Chris or her son. That's it. It's a binary choice. And Chris is a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> like she's never been treated well by Chris. So her son doesn't have a gambling problem yet. Yeah. Her son has never gone and knocked over a bank truck and brought home $8,000. <laughs> Yeah. 
Jesus, Chris, get it together. (laughs) (laughs) So Neil is like all about getting out of town now. And he goes and visits Edie. And uh, Edie has been watching the evening news and is quite horrified to learn that the boyfriend she thought was a metal salesman is in fact a... A, a lead bullet dealer. <laughs> oh man, we both went in the same direction. High five. <laughs> uh, she runs out of the house and he kind of like chases her up the vacant lot behind it. Some of the most beautiful shots in this movie are in this scene. They uh, they stage the camera kind of like low down behind the, the uh, foxtails growing on the side of the hill while he tries to salvage this relationship and like how do you make a vacant lot look good this is how you do it like the way this film is lit and this scene is lit makes it look so beautiful yeah it's all it almost distracts you from the idea that he's like semi-abducting his girlfriend (laughs) right she's like because like in the next scene she's almost catatonic she's like totally She's miserable. She like is is totally shut down emotionally. You know, he's like trying to like play with her hair, trying to kiss yeah, her, like, and she's like, "Get your fucking she hands off." She physically recoils from him. He really he puts it to her like, "If you want out of the relationship, like you can leave. I'm not going to chase you this time. But I want to take you to New Zealand and do this for real, and we will be safe there." The proximity of this scene to the scene that happens after where Uh, Al Pacino meets Ralph, the guy that his wife has been fucking, is is intentional. (laughs) Yeah, like like the we're seeing the 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 personal relationships dissolve before our eyes, and they're happening simultaneously. Yeah, poor Ralph. Yeah, Ralph just uh, thought he was suddenly punching well above his fighting weight. Ralph got invited over for chicken. Yeah. He got there on time. Yeah, and uh, and the chicken was not overcooked. <laughs> God, he plays this... The character who plays Ralph is great, too. Like, the way he plays this scene. Like, because he's closed in. Like, he's walled yeah. off from his escape by Pacino. He just has to sit there and eat it. Yeah, this is uh, Xander Berkeley, Great actor. I think he's in um, 24... In the first couple of seasons of 24. I, yeah. I love this guy. Yeah. I'm very angry, Ralph. You know, you can ball my wife if she wants you to. You can lounge around here on her sofa. In her ex-husband's dead tech post-modernistic bullshit house if you want to. But you do not get to watch television Nate has orchestrated the new escape plan because the thing about uh, about how the heist went down is that they had an idea of how they were going to escape but because the heist was already blown uh, because of Treo being caught he needs another way out and so Nate is able to supply him with that out it's a private plane at LAX yeah which uh, gives you a sense of how much credit De Niro has has developed with this guy over the years getting a uh, authentic 
passport and a PJ out of town. Yeah. Got to be, got to come at a pretty penny. He tells Macaulay that Chris knew and knows of this plan, but turned it down. He's sticking around for Charlene. Yep. And uh, he does the a drive-by of the Venice uh, safe house where they're keeping her, and the cops are all, like, hunkered down behind the window. They say, like, go, go show yourself in the window. And uh, she kind of makes a subtle hand gesture to him that it is not safe to come up. And uh, he uh, disappears into the wind. And uh, back at the precinct, they're, like, sitting around in the you know, in the, in the office and Pacino declares, this is, this is over. Like we, we missed our opportunity. We had 24 hours to nab these guys and there's no fucking way we're doing it now. So, uh, I'm going to go check into the separated from his wife guy (laughs) hotel room I'm staying in. I presume it's the, uh, Spring Hill Inn and Suites because, uh, (laughs) I ran into Ralph getting his continental breakfast there. We're buds (laughs) now. Yeah, we uh, we lamented that TV I kicked out of my car. It's so fucking mean the way Justine says uh, I've got to demean myself with Ralph, and Ralph was in the room. Yeah, that is so cold. That is that is icy. That is Ralph's not like, gonna I'm feel doing, good for Ralph. Cut to Ralph. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> I know I could lose twenty five pounds and you know shave the neck beard, but. I, I have my own stuff, okay, Justine? Look, at least I brush my teeth before morning sex. <laughs> well, uh, Pacino gets to his hotel room, and uh, it's it's kind of a, a weird scene because he, like, walks through the water on the floor. Like, there's there's water leaking out of the bathroom into the carpet in the hotel room that he walks right through, and goes and like takes in the city skyline from his balcony and then walks back and discovers um his stepdaughter has uh has uh, attempted to take her own life she uh, cut her wrist and and thigh and is in a bloody bathtub in uh you know using the water to like stop the blood from clotting i guess uh and it's a really intense and upsetting scene like i don't know i don't know if this is hard or easy to act as messed up as natalie portman does uh it's a it's a really it's a really rough scene it's very it's it's a genuinely heartbreaking scene yeah and vincent is as tender with her as he is with the mother of the murdered sex worker earlier like yeah it's like, it's clear that he really cares about her, and this is the way he has of showing that he cares about anyone. Like, he doesn't have any other ways, you know? It is only in crisis situations that he can be human. Right. Boy, that is a great way to describe it. Like, how many people are like that who only rise up to the level of humanity when they're they're pressed into service? Like, that their resting state isn't that way. It's only... yeah. It's only post bad thing. Yeah. It's tough. And it's, uh, he's the right person to be there for it because he, like, immediately has got tourniquets on the limbs that have slashes in them. 
Yeah, he's like telling the trauma surgeons like exactly what to do and what her condition is when he brings her to the hospital. Yeah, he has like way better like he's he's like never gonna wait for an ambulance. He drives her himself because he's got the rollers on the car. Like he can he can police car through traffic and he also gives like as good of vital sign information to the to the doctors as anybody could. I know what the response time is to an ambulance this time of night. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I sped through the traffic light. <laughs> that is my terrible Pacino. Thank you. You uh, should just re-record that as you. <laughs> That's equally bad as mine, Adam. <laughs> But she makes it. Uh, we like we never see her character again. But uh, Natalie Portman, uh, we we get like the report from the the RN or whatever at the ER that she's gonna make it. And then Pacino gets the beeper message that uh, that Neil is uh, perhaps gettable because because Macaulay heard that Wayne grows gettable. Yeah, he got he got the information that Wayne Grow is in this hotel because they like put it out on the streets, and uh, God, if you're Nate, why do you tell him this? If you're Nate, why do you tell him this without saying like this is clearly a trap? Because right. why would this information filter back to me unless it's a trap? Especially because it it hangs Nate out there. Because if Macaulay's gonna get caught, what's to stop Macaulay from ratting out Nate? Right. I don't know. I think this is this is this is bad bad stuff from Nate. Bad upsec, Nate. I love all of the like tricks that he pulls in this scene when Neil like goes into the hotel. It is like clearly the same version of him that sauntered through the ER at the beginning yeah. of the film. Yeah. He's like he calls the front desk, he gets the room number by impersonating room service, he steals a you know, the uniform jacket of the hotel. The couple of times that you've ever, like, been behind the scenes at a hotel, you know that it's, like, confusing, and if you don't know where you're going, it's you're not going to necessarily find it. But he just, like, walks with confidence and knows what to look for. And it's yeah. like, oh, like, here's a rack of Maglite flashlights, and here's the fire alarm. Oh, I'll leave this garbage can in the elevator door so that it doesn't close when all the elevators go to one when the fire alarm goes off. It's clear that like he he puzzled through this all in his head like everything from like how am I going to get into this hotel to like there is probably going to be surveillance in this hotel. I will need to like be ready for that. All of that stuff. Edie is like sitting out in the car while all this goes down, shaking in her boots. Yeah, Edie's got to know what's 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 happening Edie has heard the 32nd philosophy yeah and that he's doing a murder has got to be occurring to her right now right like somehow she's like decided that she loves him enough that she's gonna take a risk on escaping with him but there's no reason to do this stop unless you're doing a murder right I mean he Edie believes in her the way I think we still believe in Macaulay. Like, I want him to exact his revenge on Wayne Grow. I want yeah. this to happen, and I'm happy when it's done. 
And also, in the aftermath, I want him to escape. Because, like, relative to Wayne Grow, he's still a good guy. Yeah. Even though his body count is way higher. Yeah. Like... I think it's so, magical the way this film... I mean, there's there's that moment you described earlier where Macaulay turns heel and, and becomes the true bad guy of the film, but it doesn't stop us from rooting for him. Yeah. In these scenes, he's the protagonist still. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, like he, he does Wayne grow, like in the midst of the chaos of people evacuating the hotel. Uh, and then you know, Edie gets 30 seconds flatted by Macaulay right after. Yeah. And that's like, that's because Pacino has shown up on the scene and it's like, Maybe the most unbelievable part of this film is like how easy it is to get around LA. But I guess I guess he gets helicoptered there, right? <laughs> yeah, he's taking a helicopter everywhere. Yeah, that would be nice. That's why you see so many helicopters in the air in LA. It's it's police officers taking them from place to place. Yeah. It's so fucking crazy, man. Like LA is so obsessed with the idea that like and, like, specifically L.A. news stations are so obsessed with the idea that, like, the best video is helicopter video. Yeah. Like, I think that they are chasing the O.J. dragon forever. Yeah. Because, like, the other day I was just, like, walking my dog and I was like, it is miserable to walk the dog right now because there are four news choppers just hovering over my neighborhood because somebody tried to do a crime and they managed to get here, and they're all filming it right now. You know, yeah, yeah. it's fucking, it's fucking weak. But yeah, um, but that's the only way to get anywhere. Yeah, not gonna send a news van through that traffic. Yeah, you don't want to buy the footage later from Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Take off your shirt. My, my, my daughter. Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit who gave it to you. Take it off. This kind of shit here sells itself. So, uh, Macaulay, upon leaving the hotel, walks onto the tarmac at LAX. Like, he still... His out plan isn't blown. No, he could still make it. Yeah. It's a pretty intense chase scene. Like, these two characters have not been in the same place at the same time that much in this film. And even in this chase scene, like we almost never see them both in the same shot, you know, like it's, there's, they're pretty far from each other. You know, you never get the shot where like one of them's in the foreground one's in the background chasing because, you know, Pacino's got a shotgun. Like yeah. if they were that close, like De Niro would just be dead. This film really considers, uh, it's light and it's sound specifically. And this is one of those scenes that, uh, that's notable for it like the sound of an airport and its landing aircraft and the lights associated with uh with taxiways yeah and and landing lights like it's so bright it is so loud and yet it is also so quiet and so dark in the very same scene right yeah because and like we've we've actually you and i sat at the in and out burger next to lax and just watched jets come in for a while yeah, it's one of my favorite things. And uh, and you know, there's like an interval to it, and there's this stretch of lights that go on to to show them, you know, where the runway starts. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pacino spots the shadow that De Niro casts in the 
in the lights there and uh and takes him out and like this is like some of the best cinematography in the film it's so amazing to look at because it goes from super dark to super bright but it's still clearly nighttime and like the like everything about it is perfect it really shows you what you can do with masterful composition and lighting like this location is a fucking dump yeah. as as airport aprons often are like there is nothing here but beacons and tall grass yeah and just like way, un, unchecked weeds and the way they're able to compose this final shot as the music swells i think is one of the things that makes this film great that moment where uh, like two two lonely guys give each other the respect of of a competition well concluded yeah. you know the the respect between criminal and officer as they hold hands is yeah. uh, is great and and you know like even saying those words makes it sound cheesy but it's not everything about it should be cheesy and somehow it isn't and i think it's like the charisma of these two actors and like the amount of truth that they've brought to their roles and how beautiful the shots are. Yeah. And Moby at the height of his powers. Yeah. Pretty great. Well, as a, as a couple of lonely guys who have just reviewed this film, Adam, uh, do you want to talk about whether or not you liked it? Yeah, I would love to. Of course I liked it. I mean, this is, uh, this is a foundational film for people like you don't have to be a film nerd to love heat, even though the things that I love about it are film nerd things. Yeah. Um, and like, I think when I think of my favorite parts of it, the real subtle parts are the things I love the most. Like I love, I love the streamer at the car dealership that falls, like how they hang on that shot Yeah. after all of the windows blow out. Like, I love that shot. I love the shot reverse shot of the night vision sequence when Macaulay gets made when they're breaking into that uh, metals depository. I love Macaulay and Edie driving through the tunnel and the shot gets blown out. Yeah. Like, the way that this film does light and dark is one of my favorite parts about it. There's so much confidence in those moves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the confidence between a director and a DP to go like, you know what this is going to look like, right? And then the other guy goes, yeah. And then they go and shoot it. It's yep. It's like, I think with a lesser filmmaker or a lesser partnership, that isn't a thing that happens. One of them talks the other one out of it. Yeah, and Spinotti and, and Mann like, work together all the time. Like, they're yeah. buddies, so... It's very easy to see how like how much trust has built up between the two of them. Yeah. In this film. Yeah, I mean, I I love it for a film that again, like for most people is about Pacino and De Niro. I love the ensemble as much as I love them. Seriously, there are so many great characters in this film. Like nobody nobody is not at their highest level in this film. Yeah. It's a lot like uh, No Country for Old Men in that way in a weird way like everything is so thoughtful every scene is so thoughtful every minor character so intentional really love it i do too man it's real hard-boiled 
but uh, you know, it just warms my heart with that holiday cheer every time. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that being said, Ben, did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda! I did, Adam. This, this feels like an easy one to me, and I feel like I should have picked something more obscure, but I can't not give it to the cop who bumps the wall in the in the cube truck when they're trying to do yeah. or trying to get the drop on them at the at the metal repository or whatever like the guy is such a bozo like he wears it all over his face like he is he is like the spiritual opposite of Wayne Grow who's mm-hmm. like he screwed up and he knows it <laughs> you know and nobody can be that mad at him because it's like such an easy mistake to make, but he is also clearly that guy all the time. And like, I think that this is, you know, I don't even know. I don't know what the actor's name is that plays that part. Like it's a very small part and the guy isn't, you know, like a super famous actor or anything, but he fucking destroyifies that, role because like hit like the emotions on his face are so true in that scene <laughs> like when they when they like roll the door up and everybody hops out and they're like let's get to fucking breakfast or whatever and he's like standing back up in the truck like i'm sorry i'm so sorry there's this thing in uh sports right now uh where like if you take a great player at a position and replaced him with what is known as like a replacement level player, which mm-hmm. is like the average of all players. Yeah. Uh, how many more losses would your team have? And that's a concept that makes me think about this actor. Like, it's one thing for the context of the scene to tell us as the viewer how guilty or bad he feels about a very simple mistake. Yeah. But this actor is so good at totally irrespective of the context of his mistake, making the face of someone who is a professional and good at his job, who also fucked up, but also made a fuck up that anyone would have. Yeah. There is, there are 200 facets to the look on his face there. Totally. And I, and I have no idea how he did it. And I don't know if he replaces, if you replace him with any other actor, if you can get there. Well, that's, yeah, like, that's the thing about this movie. Like, Martin Ferrero is the guy selling the explosives at the beginning, or Xander Berkeley is the guy that is allowed to ball yeah. uh, Vincent's wife and, you know, sleep in his wife's ex-husband's bullshit house, but... He gets to fuck the chicken. <laughs> yeah. Like, 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 every extra is at such a high level also, Yeah, you know? Yeah, and I think true. that that's like like when you are the movie that finally got Pacino and De Niro, you can wield that kind of power in your casting. Like I want only heavy hitters in every single role, no matter how small. There is no weak part to this film in any performance. Yeah, I can't, I can't pick one out anyway. Even down to like uh, Donald's wife, I I low key am in love with Donald's wife. She's so nice and supportive of him. Yeah. Like when he gets out of prison and when she watches the news and sees the report that he's been killed, like, God, I'm just crushed for her. That's she a gets really two scenes in this scene. film and she is brilliant in both. Yeah. How about you? Did you have a drunk Shimoda? I mean, I think for me, it's got to be Van Sant 
because he's the guy who acts with the most misplaced confidence. Like he has no idea the shit that he's involved in. He thinks he's smarter than anyone else and he is not. (laughs) And the moment he thinks he is and makes the crucial mistake, it's a life ending mistake that he cannot extricate himself from. Like, and what's, what's so torturous about it is that he knows he's in that kind of hell and he's alive for a lot of it before he's finally taken off the board. Yeah. Yeah. He goes and I feel like that's like a, that's like the same house as the evil executive and RoboCop lives in those (laughs) big floor to ceiling windows. I felt like those scenes were very similar. I totally agree with you. It's very, a a weird little callback. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Ben, I love doing these holiday episodes with you. Uh, Yeah. It's been a great year for us. It's been a great year doing the project with you. And I just want to uh, thank you for being such a great friend and co-conspirator uh, in in the greatest generation. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing this with me. And, uh, and I think we should also say thanks to all the folks uh, that support their favorite shows on Maximum Fun. I... Uh, I know that this goes out to everybody, so if you're listening and you're not a Greatest Gen listener and and you're listening this far into this very long episode, uh, thank you for listening. Give Greatest Gen a try. And if you are a Greatest Gen listener and a Greatest Gen supporter, uh, we just want to say a, you know happy holidays and thank you so much for supporting the work that we do because it has really uh, made a big positive uh, difference in both of our lives to be able to do this on a professional level and uh yeah thank you very much and i uh, i hope uh, i hope your holiday whichever holiday you celebrate is great indeed and with that we'll be back at you next year with another inexplicable holiday film <laughs> and uh and ben and i there to discuss it in some sort of holiday adjacent context <laughs> MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.